This is the second part of my conversation with Darren McKiernan. This covers his investment approach, why he'll be spending more time in China, and his take on the current market environment. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Bites and Insights, the podcast designed to give you insights on how our investors manage client money. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm excited to have Darren McKiernan join us today. Darren has been managing global dividend funds for over a decade, starting at Trimark and then taking over the McKenzie Global Dividend Fund in January of 2014. Darren and his team manage over $11 billion in assets. How do you approach markets? How do you think about uh, investing client money? Well, I guess... The fund that I manage, there's there's really one. I call it well. There's two, but but the main one is the global dividend fund, which yes. which which you which you meant, mentioned earlier. Um, and I don't really approach markets. I don't really approach it like what's the market doing that sort of thing. Like of of, of course you know we we think about the macro. I mean, I use the, the I, I usually steal the line from Seth Clarman. He says he 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 worries top down, but he invests bottom up. Uh, running a dividend fund, I do have to have some sort of appreciation for the direction of interest rates. Sure. Right at the end of the day, yield is is part of the part of the return component. Um, but it's really just a fairly straightforward approach based on making sure that our team focuses on what the, we think are the best businesses in the world, and we call it a dream team. It's been uh, uh, it's been a um, a list of companies that sort of been in our call it our database for the better part of 15 years okay. uh it's about uh, it's just under 400 of those names right now and don't forget this is a, out of a universe of thousands of stocks of right so this is not exactly people think well that's a that's a lot of that's a lot of names it really isn't and, and you have to think that the vast majority of them are companies that we've been following for many many years mm-hmm. um and we really approach it that way is is what across not just every across all geographies and all sectors what are the best businesses that we could own and that's where it starts and that's really the key to our sort of day-to-day process it's always if we're looking at something is it something that can be added to the dream team is it something that we take away and and and, and keep in mind that this dream team it does evaluations don't matter like we don't care if the company is trading at uh, 50 times revenues. Right. If we think it's a great business, we want to kind of follow it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we, there's many, many companies on that list that have never approached our, our buy price or because of because of that. Right. But our view is that if it's a great business, we want to follow it. What it also does is it informs what we do with other businesses that you know have been on the dream tent that are no, no longer deserve to be on that. Uh, this is a really tricky time to be an investor because of disintermediation mm-hmm. across all sorts of industries. Uh, so we really start there. That's that's the most important thing. So maybe I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll pause you there sure. and ask you to define a little bit. You, you talk about uh, this dream team and, and finding mm. high-quality businesses. Sounds a lot like businesses with moats is how other people uh, may stay mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, what how do you determine if that quality of business and that mode is sustainable? Uh, and you're talking about disintermediation, right. so it's probably a great time for the question. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's this is it. That's, this is the hardest part of the job, but it's the most important part mm-hmm. is simply what's this business going to look like in 10 years? Uh, and what is its competitive edge today? What's its call it, barriers to entry, call it moat, however sure. you want to define it. That is the most important part of our job because if we don't get that right, 
everything else doesn't really matter. Meaning if we pay 10 times earnings or five times earnings, it doesn't matter. If that moat is is not viable or if it's a business that is going to be encroached or the underlying unit economics are going to change to the worst, uh, typically speaking, there's, there's almost no price from a valuation standpoint that makes sense. By the same token, if we can figure out and have a good grasp as to what that business will do over the next 10, 20 plus years uh, from a positive standpoint, and we think it can grow. And again, we don't need things to grow 20%, 15%. In fact, that, sure. if anything, that 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 is not really, I mean, we're not a growth fund. Um, uh, that's not really something we're looking for. We're looking for businesses that we think can grow sustainably, you know, mid, mid single digits, <laughs> that top line, which is really actually really, really hard to do over the course of time. Um, and the, the real question is, okay, if that's the case, do they have, you know, the return on invested capital? Like they can, can they grow at a reasonable rate and generate enough cash at a high return and reinvest in the business to keep growing at that very reasonable rate? Now, if you do that, you can actually pay a lot more money than you might think given those businesses, given, given, the, given the nature of compounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really, you asked about what moats, uh, what are competitive advantages. I mean, there's, there's, a, it's, there's a gamut of them. There's, you know, there's all sorts of things like, like uh, obviously, there's regulatory barriers. There's, there's, uh, there's patent protection. There's intellectual property barriers, uh, that, which can go from, you know, call it from scientific Barriers like uh, if you're a pharma- or if you're a pharmaceutical or a biotech sure. company, you you have certain exclusivities for 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 a window of time. Uh, brands, you know, can be considered a a, a a type of barrier to entry, uh, which creates you know a certain durability or a certain recurring revenue stream for certain businesses. Now, I'll say brands are not quite the same competitive advantage you had say ten or twenty years ago, okay. and because of the internet, because of the way. People can access information and, you know, they don't just have to, you know, their only way of getting access to information, you know, 20 years ago was what, you know, what was the, the three or four big networks, you know, advertising sure. and what were the, in, in the walking through down a Loblaws, what were they, what, what were the, what were the aisles telling you to buy, right? right. And what was, what was frankly in the aisles, right? Uh, so that's changed uh, things like um, switching costs, you know, if it takes, you know, I always say if it, if it takes a real, you know, if, if if having to move from one uh, product or service to another is like having open heart surgery, right? usually uh, usually high switching cost. You can do, you can do it, but it's uh, you're not taking, very pleasant. It's not very pleasant, <laughs> and uh, you have to think long and hard about it. Uh, and of course, the most probably in this today in this day and age, the most powerful competitive barrier to entry is is a platform that uh, generates a network economics. Right. Um, and creates natural monopolies. And those, you know, the, the ones we think about where you have the two-sided that sort of supply and demand sort of um, network effect, the, the ones you talk about, Google, Facebook, uh, Tencent, um, the, the, those are the obvious ones. But there's less obvious ones that people don't think about, things like um, industrial gases, uh, like stock exchanges, right. which we own uh, a lot. Uh, thinking of you know the 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 card networks, payment networks, um, you know a company like Moody's is benefits from network economics, and those are the most powerful 
probably barriers to entry today. And 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 if you can find those types of businesses at what we consider to be reasonable prices, that's that's been obviously uh, worked out very well. So staying at the top of the funnel uh, and talking about the dream team, mm-hmm. um, those are companies that you're looking for uh, that you're finding very uh, appealing. What types of companies are falling out of uh, the dream team right now? Yeah, well, just. Th- that's that's actually we've uh, if if we I, I know that we've probably taken more com- companies off the dream team mm-hmm. in the last five years than we've added, just because of these these structural dynamics that are going on in the world and and, and how the world's evolving, um, affecting everybody. Uh, it's affecting our business, right? Sure. Um, I would say anything that has it's got that is a dis- distributor. That's got high gross margins relative to other uh, forms of uh, distribution. Um, you've got, you know, like I said, Amazon, the classic, your margin is my opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Any Anything that uh, where you don't own the underlying IP, the underlying product, that's not your brand, um, and you're just acting as a middleman, um, it's a very, very hard place to be. And uh, I would say, uh, again, also things like... Um, you know, the, and that goes from anything, to not just drug, distrib- drug distribution, but you know, advertising agencies. I mean, again, these businesses for years have been in the middle of sort of, you know, connecting uh, advertisers with, 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 with customers. And uh, that's a tougher thing to do now with, you know, 80% of all sort of online advertising is going through two gatekeepers. It's uh, the value add of, of a pure agency now in terms of certainly uh, programmatic buying is, has gone down a lot. Right. So once you've determined that uh, broader universe, or I guess it's a Mm -hmm. smaller universe Mm -hmm. than the one you're investing in, Mm -hmm. how do you determine what makes it actually into the portfolio? Well, there's the, the, uh, we start off like what, because of the mandate, it's a core mandate, right? And it's, it's meant to be fairly broad. Mm -hmm. Um, We have certain parameters in terms of geographic exposures, in terms of minimal sector exposures. We always want to have at least six sectors exposed to the fund. Um, but then from there, that standpoint, it's, so we make sure there's like sort of a built-in balance across the fund. Uh, you don't want the investors to think they're buying into something and waking up one day and it's, you know, 50% is in Japan or, sure. or, or 45% of the fund is in industrial products or energy, right? right. That's just something that I think, you know, I, I, I think you don't want your portfolio manager to be making these overarching macro bets. Certainly that's not my strength and, 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 and that's where we start. But from there, given that we have this universe of what we think to be very, very high quality businesses, which is really, that's probably our biggest risk mitigation tool over time. Sure. You own great companies, even if you pay a little bit more at the time, um, time is your friend and uh, you'll, you'll skate on side more often than not if you've done the right thing in terms of understanding the moat and, and the competitive advantages. But the, the fund is simply a reflection of this, the, we call it the, 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 the best 50 to say 80 names that represent the highest discount to what we think they're worth. Okay, and so you've got your you top of the funnel. You know you've got those that, thousands of universal stocks. We narrow that down to our dream team, which also is is an evolving, constant mm-hmm. organic sort of um, uh, uh, entity, if you will. And then you you narrow that down to the actual fund itself. Those that those you know several dozen names uh, of what we consider to be considered to represent the best value today relative to what else we could buy. And that's it. And so we're always thinking about. What can we sell? How are we improving the portfolio? 
Are we lowering the valuation? Are we improving the margin structure? Are right. we improving the balance sheets? Are we improving the dividend yield? And every decision we make is always, how is this improving the portfolio? And is it and, and under the context, it does, does it remain balanced? Because you know we could buy just a bunch of call it you know we own we own six stock exchanges, right? Now we have a portfolio full of stock exchanges because they've got high returns, high dividends, high margins. Mm-hmm. You know they've got a lot of different sort of barriers to entry, but that's also not prudent portfolio management. Right. right. We want to have the exposure there. We really love the businesses, but <clears throat> you know, greater things can happen, right? We, we, the, the unknowability of any business is, it still exists. And, and so we, we manage our exposures, uh, fairly, uh, precisely from that standpoint. From the industry, uh, yeah. level standpoint yes. factors as well. Yeah. You, yeah. you have a look at those. Oh yes. Well, we may, we have a, you know, uh, we every month or sorry, every quarter, uh, our team gets together with our CIO and, mm-hmm. and we go through these things. And the beautiful thing about having the core mandate and, oh, you know, it's neither growth nor value. It's it, sure. it kind of shifts around a little bit. And again, maybe talking about the fund itself, the dividend fund specifically, we think our advantages have been, you know, we th- uh, have been beyond, I think, our focus on what we truly believe to be the high quality businesses and and and. And I can get into how sort of that evolved for me personally, that 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 focus. Um, but we think the yield component is somewhat unique in that even though it's a dividend fund, we're not that's not we're not a slave to that yield. Uh, we will always own businesses that pay dividends, but we're not obsessed about whether the fund is, you know, one percent or fifty fifty basis points above the, the, the dividend yield. Right. We always try and keep it above its benchmark. MSCI uh, benchmark, but uh, we can own things like I mentioned Tencent, which has got a 30 basis point yield, and sure. we can own things like Philip Morris, which has got a a, a yield now approaching six percent. Right. So, uh, and that's I think a fairly unique feature for certainly for the dividend uh, fund. And that flexibility is an inherent advantage as you're able to find opportunities in different. I segments think so. In the market. I, I think so. People are both from a stylistically and from a yield standpoint. I think you know everyone's waiting for the day to turn when 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 value starts becoming sure. uh, look I don't know when that's going to happen it could mm-hmm. uh, it's and 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 we we will have no problems owning those businesses uh, when we think that that's the right time to own them we, we again we're not boxed into any stylistic sort of uh, 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 mandate um, and it's frankly our job and that's our judgment call as to when when that might be appropriate to sort of tilt the fund to more towards those those parts of the parts of the market. Great. And just to get a little bit wonky, I guess, yeah. uh, let's talk a little bit about your intrinsic value and how you <clears throat> come up with your intrinsic values. Um, what's uh, What do you look at uh, when determining that? Obviously, it's going to vary by company by company, but give us a general sense of how you determine intrinsic. Well, we there's, we try to take it from a few approaches. We triangulate it a little bit. Um, the first and the first part is we look at our business. We model our businesses out. We we take the cash flows and the income statements and and the balance sheets and see what what's this. What do we think this thing can earn in three years and five years time and seven years time? Uh, so real world you know, assumptions, right? What's what's the volume growth looking like? Do they have pricing power? Are there are there margins compressing? Well, what 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 what's the market saying, right? Mm-hmm. And are we are we are we above or below that? I mean, I really try and make sure that my my. My unless there's a real distinct, you know, we have a really strong view on a particular name. I try and you know make sure that the models are all fairly conservative. Um, and then at the end of those three years, what do we think we would what, would, what would we pay for that? What's the multiple, right? Uh, which is sort of a shorthand way of you know discounting cash flows. Sure. And then seven years out, the same thing. 
then we do a discounted cash flow, right? We look at, okay, what, what, what are our assumptions? What, what, are, what are our terminals? Is this a cyclical business? So if it's cyclical, let's multi, let's, let's build it up for 10 years and let's assume a recession in between. Um, that's the, that's the, that's the next step. And, and, and just, just to keep in mind, you know, discounted cash flows, you have to be careful with, right? Because, they're very sensitive to small changes in assumptions. Sure. If I, if I, the difference between having a zero terminal growth rate and a plus two percent is enormous, right? So we take that with it. Or what, what rate do you use? You know, in a world of, you know, uh, long treasuries sub two percent as of sure. today, right? I mean, what's the right discount rate? What risk premium do you put on that stuff? And and so we have been careful about that uh, and how we've. You know, getting into well, what do we, how do you value stuff in a world of two percent long bonds and 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 frank and negative interest rates and you know, sixteen trillion dollars of negative interest rates. Like you said, uh, France and uh, and Sweden went negative last quarter, and Germany went negative in terms of long bond just recently. Right now, if you <laughs> a negative discount rate is like almost like the, the companies are worth infinity right it's right. it's it's the way the math works but that's obviously ridiculous um but what it has done matt is we've think long and hard about our true truly great compounders and again we've had the stream team of 400 or so names obviously not, there's difference in quality even amongst those 400 uh and but it's been my experience that typically when you sell out of great businesses i mean that's usually a mistake um, and so what we've tried to do to adjust for that is very careful, very slow about taking money off the table, even in businesses that we think are trading at or near their intrinsic values. If we believe, cause we're concerned, we, we have inherent conservatism in our, in our, in our assumptions. I'm almost always know that my intrinsics are going to be below what I think the company is worth five or 10 years from now. Okay. And I try and adjust for that. And so as a result, we've sort of given with, with, with rates are. We really try and uh, be careful about completely exiting what we consider to be great businesses. Now we'll take money off the table, we'll, we'll to trade down positions, but it's most of my regrets over the last 23, 24 plus years now uh, have been selling great companies, completely selling out of great companies and never buying them back. Okay. Um, so that segues nicely, I think, into talking about uh, cell discipline a little bit more specifically. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. resident uh, resident to sell great companies. Mm -hmm. uh, when do you actually make that decision? Uh, the, 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 the easiest time to sell. I'll tell you, buying something is a lot easier than selling something. That's just a, that's a blanket statement and nothing, nothing new because um, – but selling something that we think is a really good company is tough. But – if there's a thesis change, mm -hmm. if the reasons why we originally bought the company have changed, we sell it. That's sort of our hard and fast rule um, because ultimately you, you can always revisit it, right? You can always say, well, maybe we're wrong, but we always have to be really trying to be as honest we can, as intellectually honest as possible. Say, look, at why did we sell this thing? Go through, go through our research report, go through the notes. And, and, and make that decision. That's kind of, call it easy, but that's that's sort of the main. The other, again, as I mentioned, uh, is the company trading at or near or above its intrinsic. Right. And, and, and this is where it's a little bit more nuanced in terms of it's my judgment as to what, what, what companies do I consider to be pure, true compounders versus companies that we think could be more of a trade. So even though they're on our dream team, again, not all of us is created equal. So the companies that would be in the, what considered the lower sort of end of a category, say they have more of a commodity focus, 
uh, or they are more regulated. For instance, if we're looking at infrastructure assets or toll roads and sure. things like that, um, those were more, much more uh, systematic in terms of okay, it's hit our price, they can move on. Again, it's those handful of c- companies that um, are we think to be businesses that can grow those free cash flows. I, uh, at the end of the day. W- the best business we have, we think of almost like, um, you know, infinite duration bonds, you know, growing sure. your coupons every year, right? right? You know, you know what I mean? Like that, that's how we think of that. So what's that worth? If you've got a bond that can grow, you know, you know, infinitely uh, over time, right? Uh, what's that worth? You know, and, and so, you know, the coupon continues to grow. Um, so we're, we're much more careful about selling out completely. Now we take positions down. I've owned McDonald's for instance, since 2002 okay. right? across my various, the various firms that I've worked at. Um, and you know, there's been years where it's done nothing, three or four years where it's, you know, it's sucking wind for all sorts of reasons, sure. whether it's mad cow disease or it's, you know, they had, a ch- I remember late 2000 or late, late 2000s, like they had their, you know, two or three of the CEOs passed away suddenly within like 18 months and they had to keep replacing CEOs and, but we, we rode through it and it's been one of the, one of the great compounding stories of the last 20 years. Right. Um, just to change uh, track a little bit, I'd like to talk a little bit about China. Uh, mm, I, I uh, saw in your most recent commentary um, some comments regarding the dominance or what you perceive will be the dominance of local mm. champions in yeah. strategic sectors within China. Yes. Uh, currently, those uh, those firms that are dominant in China tend to be foreign. Uh, you're you're projecting that that's going to shift. Tell me what lies behind that conviction and uh, what you're doing to identify those uh, incumbent or, or up-and-coming up companies. Yeah, well, it came about we, when I went over there. Uh, you know, I'd been there years ago, and then I went over again three or four years ago and just touring a bunch of different consumer product companies, uh, industrial plants, and just, just – and this is nothing new here. Just, just being taken away by the amount of development that's happened, and then the speed at which things are happening. Uh, I talk about high-speed rail systems being built from scratch to now like the biggest high-speed rail network in the world mm-hmm. by far. Uh, airports going up, uh, sort of out of the you know, uh, w- within months, uh, and then then being fully capacity utilized within you know a year after that or several years after that. Uh, and just at the end of the day, this is a the second largest economy in the world. And it strikes me as something that I think investors should think about uh, because it's going to become more and more part of the global financial system. You know, trade wars aside, we understand, of course, this stuff is going to happen. And, and But the rise, you know, the importance of China as an economic player in the world's, you know, grand scheme of things isn't, isn't going to go away. Uh, just to give you know the, the the listeners some context, I mean the U.S. stock market's around sort of thirty five trillion dollars, sure. give or take. Uh, the Japanese stock market's around six or seven trillion. Okay, now don't forget the U.S. is about represented in the benchmark around sixty percent or so, um, and China or sorry Japan's around under ten. Okay, so six trillion and ten percent, sixty percent and thirty five trillion, China is a what, 12, 13 trillion dollar economy, sure, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's less than 1% represented in a benchmark. So just just by by, by pure, you know, as 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 
by pure math, if you will, is it's now become part of the MSCI global benchmark. That's only going to go one way. I think that if you're an investor globally, <clears throat> and of course, certainly many of the companies that we own, whether they're domiciled in the US or Europe or Japan, uh, have benefited from the rise of China and, and not an insignificant amount of their revenues and sales and, and, um, and profits come from that region. And that's not going to change. But it's my view that over the next 20 years, China has, has made, and they've been very public about this, there are going to be certain sectors that are extremely important, that are strategic, where they want to take more control uh, over whether it's semiconductors, whether it's uh, uh, consumer products, oh, sorry, healthcare, industrial products, things like that, that are really important to the underlying infrastructure of, of, of China. That's, that's going to change. And, you know, it's going to be really important not just to know what those companies are, who they are, and see them, the local champions evolve, but how does it affect the companies that were in there today? What, what, what if you're 3M and you've been in there since the 70s and you've got probably 10, 15% of your revenues or certain your profits coming out of there? You know, are, are those going to be challenged over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And how does it affect how we think about the business? Um, and there's you can go down the list. Any any big multinational company has got exposure there. And uh, you have to be cognizant of how those things are changing. And and so I'll tell you, I'm going to, you know, this is no no big secret. I'm going to spend a lot more time over there over the next, uh, let's call it, several years. And, um, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, this is, today is what, August uh, what's, 13th. 13th, and they've closed down the Hong Kong airport. Right. So Assuming you can get I'm not, in, I'm not in going back out. there next. I'm not going back. <laughs> There, I'm not going there this week, but I you know, and I, and I, I don't want to get into uh, any sort of political, yeah, sure. uh, you know, commentary here. But this is something that has to resolve itself at some point, and um, you know, this is this is. Uh, but but the, the, regardless um, of the the details of around that, this is this is this is a real thing in terms of the evolution of China as a, as an economic force, and it's going to have more and more influence. And it's my job as a global core dividend manager to be very to, to be on top of this and right. i think uh, i think if i am that 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 will provide an edge uh i think to the portfolios over time and that's we have an analyst not full-time based full-time in hong kong uh we have got another you know it's a, one of other our other analysts is from beijing and and, and and spends all of her time uh, uh looking at those businesses uh, and I'm probably going to spend more and more of my time uh, really ramping up in that part of the world as well. How much do you expect to – how much of your day, uh, year would you expect to s spend in Hong Kong? Well, probably start off six months, wow. right? Uh, but that could go up. Sure. Um, and again, it's uh, to the point where maybe there's a there could be a permanent relocation at some point. Right. I'm always going to be coming back here. Yeah, of <laughs> course. You got to come and talk gotta, with me. Yeah, Darren. that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, this is this is uh, you know certainly something that we're we're very serious about, and mm -hmm. I'm serious about, and I think that it's a. Uh, uh, I think it's a. Uh, frankly, it's a, it's going to be critical. I think over the next ten years. Great. Well, thanks for your insights, Darren. Uh, we'll turn to the bite segment of oh. the podcast where we talk about uh, today's current market environment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the 13th of August. MSCI opened at uh, 2,117. Um, the headlines that we've seen uh, most recently all about the trade war escalation, we referred to it uh, as part of the earlier conversation. Um, I'd love to hear your view, uh, not necessarily on uh, how the trade war will end up being resolved, but how you 
take the context of something like a trade war when you're thinking about your portfolio, sure. you're thinking about the businesses, and how do you respond? Yeah, um, it's always what's discounted, what's not being discounted, how much worse can it get? I mean, these are all things that are unknowable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've taken this sort of view that this is being driven by, look, both sides want a deal, particularly China, in my opinion. Uh, so to some extent, there it, ultimately it's up to um, the president, to Trump, to you know, decide when and how that happens. Um, and also, it's my view that what's important to him is, is he going to get elected in 2020? Sure. And so uh, between now and that time, I would be surprised if there isn't a deal of some sort, right? And But until such time, it's going to be volatile. I mean, there's nothing new here. How, from a portfolio management standpoint, this is what we've tried to do. We're, you know, we have owned, we own a number of obviously uh, stocks that are directly and indirectly exposed to China. Uh, I'm not going to all of a sudden, for instance, we've owned Sands China for 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 many years. It's it's the only place Macau. It's based out of Macau. It's the only place in China where you can legally gamble. Right? Obviously, it gets impacted by this. Now, it's not my job. My view has been like, I'm not going to just start doubling down every time the stock's off 3 or 4%. It's like, this could get worse before it gets better. We have a, a number in mind where we'd start adding to it, mm-hmm. okay? Even though the stock's come off I was like 10, 15% over the last several months, of course. Nothing surprising there. Uh, but nothing has changed in terms of the underlying structural drivers of that business. There's nothing we own where the underlying structural drivers of the business are going to change because of this. Now, what's happened is in the interim, you've got issues, right? It's it it's there. There's one business in particular which I can't describe because we're actually selling it right now. Okay. <laughs> right? But where we say, look, this is a big chunk of their profit pool. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. We all we already had questions and issues on the margins about this business, so this gave us a really good reason to say let's just get out. And it's like literally have I just put in we have fifteen basis points left in the in, okay. the, in the thing to sell. So then we started selling about a month or so ago. Um, we've identified companies that we would want to own, okay, and we think again we believe that this sort of stuff will resolve. This is going to be resolved at some point in time. We think that sure. all both sides want a deal. And the worse things get from a market standpoint, from an economic standpoint, it, it actually drives people to the table. Again, timing is, I have no idea, but uh, in terms of specific timing, but I do think that something will be done certainly before the elections. And so we do what we're always doing. We're, we have got companies on our dream team list that we're looking at, what companies are being directly affected, what are being indirectly affected. We're buying something right now that is being, you know, indirectly affected that it's been on our dream team for 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 many years and we've been waiting and now the this company is off 20 percent or so in the last right. two or three months and this is what we do and this is it, it, you know it's again we're not all of a sudden you know you're not gonna see it pop up as a top five position tomorrow sure. because again we're trying to be you know we we trying to predict this stuff and how extreme it gets um, very hard to do but we're, we are certainly being active today and we're just doing what we always do what are those businesses that are going to come out of the stuff the other side as strong or stronger uh, without taking any sort of undue stock-specific risk in the portfolio? Excellent. Uh, so it's provided both uh, opportunity and a reason to sell. So yes. It's, yeah. uh, well, that's usually sure. the way these things work, right? Sure. Um, 
curious about your view on interest rates. Uh, we we had yeah. a 25 basis point cut uh, recently from the Fed. Um, I think the market was a little disappointed with, mm. they're calling it hawkish. I don't know how you'd describe yeah. uh, the language from Powell. Um, but uh, And being a dividend manager, interest rates can impact uh, the, mm. the stocks that you look at. What's your view on uh, interest rates and, and specifically how do you view uh, yields of your particular companies um, and how sensitive they are to the interest rates? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we're, again, just reiterate, we're not macroeconomists economists, macroeconomists here and we're not trying to make these, you know, calls from a top-down standpoint. Uh, but again, we're, we think about this stuff. We have to, right? Sure. Gravity is, as they say, interest rates are the gravity of markets, and everything sort of every sort of financial investment, financial security is priced off of interest rates. So you can't just put your head in the sand and say, "I don't care where interest rates are going. I'm just going to pick stocks." Uh, and then it, that that holds true even more so for a dividend fund, which is a yield product. And so. Um, what we've done, you know, we, we try to make, we try and what's the market telling us and what's the, what are the central banks telling us? And we try not to get too, um, try not to interpret it too much beyond what we see and what's happening. And so up until what would have been December of 2015, right? Rates were going down, had been going down and then right. Janet Yellen incre increased rates for the first time since the financial crisis. That to me was as good of a signal that, hey, things are changing. And the changing meaning that that whole sort of e approach to how we got yield by just hey whatever whatever had a yield you know rates going down 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 you could just buy bond proxies you could buy utilities you could buy staples you could buy all this stuff and for a long time for the first certainly five six years that I was running this this mandate you know, pre and predating McKenzie um, that was the way to go we made the you know call it a tactical decision uh, that once that changed we had to think about how would we were how were we getting our rate sort of exposures, and we kind of shifted a little bit. We certainly you know, and again, this just didn't happen overnight, but over the course of yeah. the next several months, for sure, next year, we would be getting our rates to again without lowering the quality of the businesses or or, or nothing changing about our process or how we looked at the individual companies. But as the lead portfolio manager, I thought about how did we shift the portfolio to to reflect these changes and central bank policy. And so we started looking at things that were more positively correlated to rising rates like banks, financials, uh, call it even call it more growthier type in, type businesses. Um, and we really lowered our, we basically have no utilities. Uh, we had no real estate investment trusts. We sold those, whatever the one we had. And our consumer staple exposure went from like 25% of the portfolio to 15% over the course of the next year. So fast forward to today, because mm -hmm. rates are going down again, right? So now we, this is tough because we, we think, um, you know, what happens if a deal gets done with China, uh, GDP starts sort of, because right now, look, we talk to these companies and they're, they're a little bit on hold in terms of their capital spending plans. It's, sure. it's affecting the real, it's affecting the economies now, right? So, you know, rates coming down, how much? I don't know. I mean, you can look at the the, 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 the plot graph and, sure. and sort of the trends there and or talk, talk to our folks in fixed income. They all have a better view than I would. But, I mean, I think that you, you listen to the language, all central banks, they, they don't want – they would love to keep rates up. They want uh, a steepening yield curve. It's good for the financial markets. It's good for the banking system. But there are structural issues that are probably going to keep a lid on rates – 
over the next little while. I mean, I, I think I talked about Japan, right? You know, if these, these, these a tremendous amount of their, of their, um, of their, of their, uh, you know, of their debt, uh, you know, it's a percentage of GDP. It's approaching 40% of GDP, I think, or something like that. And then a rising rate, rising JGB, rising prices in, in, in Japan would create potential financial disaster, right? Um, and that's increasing the case around the world. So, um, uh, my view is, you know, if and when this trade war gets resolved and all of a sudden GDP starts ticking up again, I don't think rates are going back to sort of pre-GFC levels like 5% plus. But right. I think I think getting back above two is not unreasonable. And I think everybody kind of, all central bankers, I kind of want that. So um, we're kind of in a limbo right now. I think we, we, we think that, you know, there's pockets of place, there's parts that, that, that of opportunity that pop up in single stock securities that pop up as a result of some of these changes. But we haven't all of a sudden changed the view where we're just, okay, let's start, you know, ramping up our, our yield because, uh, rates are going to continue to go down. Um, and is that is that a thematic, not just uh, taking a look at interest rates, but more broadly, are you seeing any segments in the market that are particularly appealing, or is it more idiosyncratic company? It by is, company? yeah. There, there's some again. There's always the, the thing about the markets today is because of nature of, of, of trading and the fact that eighty percent of all trades are done through IHFTs or algos or, or passive investments. Um, uh, this creates a lot more volatility. Mm-hmm. And so the volatility can be single stock, but it's based off of some sector that people decide to get out of. Uh, so, but there's no real overarching trend. Uh, of course, anything that's, anything that's associated with commodities in particular energy is it's, it's really been rough, right? Like our, call it the value portion of our, of our, the value portion of our fund is you can see where they they're coming from that that end of the spectrum. So there's really good value there, but again, those are not great businesses, right? They're price takers. They don't they don't they can't control their own destiny the same way as uh, some of the other sort of higher quality companies that we own. But there are opportunities there, and we do own some. And there's you know, there's 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 things that we're looking at adding to. But uh, but again, you're not going to wake up today. You know, the, the, about less than five percent of the fund is in energy. You're right. not going to because these things have been coming off. You're not going to you know the quarterly report's not going to come up, and you're not going to see like twenty percent of the fund in energy. But on the margin, are we adding to some of our higher quality energy names and, and service companies? Yes. Okay. Great. Well, thanks for being so generous with your time, Darren. I uh, really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Join us next month for my conversation with Nelson Aruda lead manager of the McKenzie Multi-Asset Strategies team. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. 
please read the fun facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. On January 27, 2012, there was a change in the investment objectives to permit the fund to invest directly in fixed income and or income-oriented equity securities anywhere in the world. On July 26, 2013, the fund changed its mandate from investing in equity and fixed income securities of companies that operate primarily in the infrastructure-related businesses to investing primarily in equity securities of global companies. The past performance before this date was achieved under the previous objectives. The performance of the McKenzie Global Dividend Fund Series F as of July 31, 2019. One year, 8%. Three year, 9.69%. Five year, 11.87%. 10-year, 12.32%.